You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Okay, you may be seated. It's really good to hear you sing, even through a mask. I know that's not the most pleasant, but it is sweet to hear, so. Okay, we're going to be in Psalm chapter 22, so if you want to open up there. Uh, I want to read a story from a, a, a book here just to set the tone for our message today. This uh, story is by a woman named Mary. Uh, it's called Hope in Christ. I'm just going to read part of it, but just to set the stage for our message this morning, I thought this would be a good place to start. Both my parents were destroyed by alcoholism. I was three when they divorced. My mother loved me and tried her best, but drinking became her refuge, binges and craziness the norm. I was repeatedly locked out of my house for such things as losing a piano competition or dumping vodka down the drain and had to break the basement window to get back inside. I was 17 when Jesus found me. A friend invited me to church, and I clung to the minister's reassuring words of God's unfailing love. I was hopeful my life would change. I married a man six years my senior. At first, our relationship comforted me, but he became violent. I was hit repeatedly, once with a dog chain, strangled, kicked in the stomach, and pushed off a dock and down the steps. Unbelievably, I convinced myself I still loved him. At 23, I found my father again. I thought he would protect and defend me, so I left my husband. Instead, my father sexually abused me. I plummeted into utter despair and attempted suicide. Failing, I screamed at God for allowing me to live. Where was he? I sought counseling with an extremely intelligent, kind young deacon. After a year, we fell in love, but he was already married. We struggled and pleaded with God for help, but ultimately gave in to sin. He divorced and we were married. We did not deserve the blessing of the three beautiful children God gave us. For the first time, I had a family. My children were under six when I began experiencing severe headaches, hearing loss, and partial facial paralysis. A specialist discovered a mass, a massive brain tumor. Parts of the tumor still remain inoperable and are now causing new complications. I remember feeling strangely calm. Though our lives were turned upside down, my family was still intact. My children grew, and though they were brought up in the church, they were also becoming strongly influenced by the world. All were arrested at some point. The youngest was diagnosed with a schizophrenic disorder. The oldest was incarcerated for two years. We were devastated. Shortly after, my husband suffered two strokes leaving his personality drastically altered. I discovered our finances were in ruin. We eventually lost our house. I was so crushed I could barely speak to a therapist. Life has not changed. Pretty heavy stuff. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is the very first words of our psalm this morning. And it is a psalm about suffering. Terrible, tragic suffering. And I I wonder if Mary would probably ask that. In fact, we see that in her story. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, 
and you do not answer, and by night I find, but I find no rest. So what about you? Have you ever been in a place where you have wondered why and ever wondered where is God? There's only a few things in the world that are universally experienced by everybody. And suffering is one of those things. Maybe it's the little things like that you experience maybe on a daily or weekly basis. Little experiences of suffering like someone hurts your feelings. You get embarrassed. You don't get a good night's sleep as we hear a baby crying. You are overwhelmed at work. You are frustrated at home. You get stuck in traffic. You deal with back pain. You have cancer, or not cancer sores, canker sores. I misspelled it here, canker sores. Those things are nasty if you ever get those. You feel the sting of conscience. You know the pain of regret. And then there's the more serious experiences of suffering. Most of us will experience some point in our lifetime. A debilitating illness, a long stay in the hospital, crushing disappointment, profound regret, a dream shattered, or sometimes even worse, a dream fulfilled that now dominates you, victim of injustice or prejudice, a house fire like your neighbors, the death of a parent, the death of a friend, the death of a child. And then there's the severe ones, as if Those aren't severe enough. There are some that may not hit everybody, but are common in our experience. Uh, We all likely know somebody. Chemotherapy, a wayward child, a bitterly unhappy marriage, addiction, betrayal, crippling anxiety, unexplainable depression, rape, unwanted same-sex attraction, abuse, chronic illness, infertility, suicidal thoughts, the horrific, horrific sense that God has left you, abandoned you, hates you, if there's even a God at all. We've all been there to varying degrees. I didn't make these up. These are, these are all um, situations that are in the life of our short little six-month-old 70-person or so church. What do you do when you suffer? Where do you go? How do you make sense of it? What is God doing? Why? Why has he forsaken you or me or us? There's no easy answers today, but we do have a word from the Lord. We do have Psalm 22, which is meant for sufferers. And so the the title of today's message is Suffering and Then Glory. Suffering Then Glory. And I want you to do something right now that might be a little bit difficult, but I want you to think of what is that thing? What is that thing that you're going through now, that struggle, that aspect of suffering, or maybe something you've endured in your life, or maybe, maybe nothing really comes to mind, but suffering is coming. That's the universal human condition. But I would love for you to just take a moment and bring to your mind that thing. And I'm going to read Psalm 22, and then I'm just going to offer a prayer for us as we prepare to go into this psalm. And, and I'm hoping that God does a work in our hearts. We won't get all the answers. I don't know all the answers. The Bible doesn't give us all the answers, but we do have a psalm to lead us. And so let me read this psalm. Bree was supposed to read this psalm, but I jumped the gun. So I'm going to read it here, and then I'm going to offer a prayer. But I want you to just take a moment under God's word to think about the suffering you've experienced or the suffering that's around you. And as we read this psalm, meditate on what God has to say to you and to us. Psalm 22, 1. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. In you they cried and were rescued, and in you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he whom, who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from on you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my joints are all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A circle of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him. But he has heard, and he cried to him. From you, my praise in the, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him, uh, before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Let's pray. Oh God. Make the next few minutes be extraordinarily and supernaturally liberating and healing and restorative to every heart, for every soul, for every mind here that's troubled. May Psalm 22 not simply be interesting, antique words on a page preserved from 3,000 years ago, but God, make them right now the very breath of the Almighty living God. For my life and for the lives of those who are hearing my voice right now, these dear brothers and sisters here, Coax us out of hiding. Draw us by your grace. Overcome our defenses with your love. 
Overwhelm our resistance with your gentleness. Unshackle us with your mercy and gather us close as trembling children. We need you even now. Amen. Charles Spurgeon, great preacher in England more than 100 years ago, said that we should read Psalm 22 reverently. We should put off the shoes from our feet, as Moses did at the burning bush, because if there is any ground in Scripture that is holy, it is certainly this psalm. And we want to look at this psalm through three lenses. One is the pathway of the psalmist. So we'll go very quickly through the psalm, and I'm just going to point out some things that the psalmist leads us through in his suffering. Then we'll look at the passion of the Christ, because this psalm has remarkable prophecies about the execution of Jesus for sin and for us. And then finally, the purpose for you and me. I want to land the plane at the end of what we do with this psalm and what we do with the good news of this psalm. So first, way, first of all, the pathway of the psalmist. So the psalmist, it says here that the psalm uh, is of David, but it's not clear by the description of the psalm exactly what situation in his life this would be. It seems like David is crying out in this psalm in some measure of suffering in his own life, but this thing, just like Psalm 2 we saw a few weeks ago, seems to go so much beyond his own experience. He is describing realities and suffering that far exceeds anything we know that David went through. In fact, what we're witnessing in this psalm is an execution. David was not executed. And so, in a sense, God by the Holy Spirit is using David to speak of realities far greater than himself. And I want you to notice the pathway the psalmist takes through his suffering. First, I want you to notice that the psalmist feels forsaken by God in the first two verses. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, yet I find no rest. Now, interesting, look at verse 3. Yet, the psalmist expresses trust in God's faithfulness. There's this tension going on between what he feels and is experiencing and what he knows about God. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. So the psalmist is expressing his feelings and experience to God, and yet he's fighting back with what he knows of God's character and God's history. Then in verses 6 through 10, we see the psalmist feels hated by man. Verse 6, but I am a worm. So now he, he switches from this praise and recounting God's faithfulness back into his situation. He feels hated by man, not, a, not just forsaken by God, but hated by man. He says, but I am a, man, a worm and not a man. He feels dehumanized by how he's been treated. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make their mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. This is a mocking statement. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. So he's actually being mocked and suffering, at least in part, for his allegiance to God. Yet, look at verses 9 and 10, he expresses dependence on God's nearness. So he recounts the character and faithfulness of God, but then he also expresses here dependence on God's nearness. Yet, you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. And so he trusts in God's nearness, even while he's feeling hated by man. And then verses 11 through 21, which is just remarkable, 
the psalmist feels crushed by death. It feels like there's no escape. It's just, it's getting very dark around him. He says, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help me. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open their mouths, open wide their mouths at me, like a ravening, roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like the potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me down in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But then look what he does in verse 19. He calls for and receives God's deliverance. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And in the second part of verse 21, you have rescued me from the lion, from the horns of the wild oxen. So you notice the mix of questioning yet trusting in God. That's like the whole Christian life until we get to glory, right? What we feel, what we experience doesn't match up with what we know. And so we have this tension going back and forth. And Martin Lloyd-Jones tells us that we need, some of, uh, some of our despair comes from the fact that we're so busy listening to ourselves instead of preaching to ourselves. And what you have is you have this combination of the psalmist crying out to God about his situation, even in some sense accusing God, you've left me, and yet at the same time recounting what he knows of God's faithfulness and deliverance. He expresses his honest feelings, yet ultimately his foundation is the uh, objective truth of what he knows about God and his character and his faithfulness and his presence. And that God will deliver. And then we see in 22 through 31 that the psalmist now lives to enjoy, display, and share the praise of God, right? We just see that all throughout here. We see this in verse 22 and 24 through joyful corporate praise. I will tell your name to my brothers, right? It's corporate. In the midst of the congregation, or Old Testament word for church, in the midst of the church, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. So now he's telling others, like, look, look what God has done. Praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. So all you covenant people, join in praise of him. For he has not despised or abhorred the afflicted, affliction of the afflicted, And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. So joyful corporate praise. Verse 25, through joyful corporate obedience. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform. I will obey you, Lord, before those who fear him. Together with others, right? My obedience isn't just individual, it's corporate with the covenant people. There's... Through joyful corporate restoration, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. We see joyful corporate repentance in verses 27 and 28. All the, earth, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. So now he's speaking of a reality of a global, a global people a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, repenting of their sins and turning to God. And through joyful corporate resurrection, look at verse 29, this is awesome. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust or the grave, even though he could not keep himself alive. So sometimes the deliverance of God doesn't mean 
that he delivers us from death. In fact, we'll see that in Jesus in just a moment, but through death. That even the one that did ultimately die in their suffering, they will be made alive together with others. And then, look at this, through, through the corporate, joyful corporate legacy, posterity shall serve him. It shall, shall be told to the Lord, to the coming generation. So not just all nations, but all generations will have this good news proclaimed to them. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. He has done it. So just a quick application, and then we're going to get into the passion of the Christ. You probably already, if you're familiar with the Bible, the story of the gospel, the crucifixion of Jesus, you probably already noticed in the psalm. But here's just some quick applications for you on the pathway of the psalmist. This is a faithful path to walk in dealing with your own pain and suffering. I won't give you all the answers, but it's a faithful path to walk. Psalm 22, declare your feelings to God. We see Job doing that, right? We see David doing it here in the Psalms over and over. Describe your situation to God. So declare your feelings to God, describe your situation to God, and then remember his character, recount his faithfulness, and give yourself to his praise and mission with others. That's incredibly simplistic, but that's what we see in this psalm. And it is the faithful path to walk. The reason I say it's the faithful path to walk is because it's the path Jesus walked. Let's look at the passion of the Christ. And what we mean by the passion, that's what we Christians have historically called the crucifixion of Jesus. His passion, his suffering on the cross. Messiah Jesus fulfills the Psalm 22 prophecy. The psalm is a stunningly perfect description of the execution of someone by crucifixion. You see the pierced hands. You see the tremendous thirst. You see the stress on the heart. My heart becomes wax. I'll talk about that in a moment. This is a perfect description of crucifixion. Here's the thing. David lived a thousand years before Christ. Crucifixion was not invented until 200 B.C. This is describing an execution style that did not exist for another 800 years. This psalm makes no sense at all until 800 years later. There's a few things that convince me that biblical Christianity is true. One of the most persuasive for me is the prophecies in the Old Testament that come true in Jesus in the New Testament. And this is one of them. This is one of those psalms that the Jewish people who have not accepted Jesus as their Messiah try to explain away. Isaiah 53 would be another passage of scripture because this is so clearly describing something that does not exist yet a form of execution that doesn't exist and it's so detailed and so perfectly matches with the new testament account of jesus being crucified it's just an amazing thing uh, I, this is one of the main reasons that i am a christian is because i'm convinced that these prophecies came true and only god could have done that you just could not make this happen by accident. Look at verse 14a. Let me just walk through eight. Eight or nine. How many do I have here? Eight. Eight points uh, or prophecies or allusions in this psalm to Jesus' death on the cross. Look at verse 14. I am poured out like water. This refers to the heavy perspiration of someone hanging in the intense sun, like crucifixion, where one is nailed to a cross, naked, and left to suffocate and die in the intense sun. Look at the second part of verse 14. All my bones are out of joint. 
This is one of the most painful aspects of crucifixion is because they laid the cross down and they would nail his hands and his feet to the cross. And then they would stand the cross up and put it in a hole so that it would stand up. And at that moment that that jars down, all of the stress brings almost all of the joints out of joint. Dislocates almost every major joint in your body that moment when that impact, when that cross hits the bottom of the hole. Look at verse 14, uh, the last part of it. We come to the expression, which doesn't make much sense all until the crucifixion. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. Medical experts say that this is probably referring to the rupture of Jesus' heart caused by the great mental and physical agony. It caused his heart to have that much stress on his body. The heart has to work so hard to pump blood that it begins to swell. It begins to... um, Kind of the plasma and the blood kind of come apart, it begins to swell, and, and the heart actually ruptures and becomes just this uh, gooey mess. John 19:34 says that Jesus died long before the other two criminals, but to make sure he was dead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, and it, and it pierced his heart, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water, which means that his heart was just a big mess. It had ruptured. David goes on to describe intense thirst in verse 15. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. John 19.28 picks this up. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill Scripture, I thirst. So here we see another connection with the Old Testament. Verse 16. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. So this Jewish Messiah will be killed at the hands of non-Jews. That's what they called non-Jewish people was dogs. And so this would be an execution by non-Jewish people. Also in verse 16, they have pierced my hands and feet, which is obviously a description of being nailed to a Roman cross, an execution form, as I've mentioned, that does not exist yet at the time of the writing. I can count all my bones. Verse 17, they stare and gloat over me. And so someone hanging on a cross is exposed and stretched naked in front of everyone. And they're so heaving and, and trying to breathe that, that, yes, all the bones just stick out. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So what that's, Romans would do that sometimes if someone was being crucified. They'd strip them naked, and if, if their garments had anything of value, then they would obviously steal that, and so they're Casting lots on who gets to take Jesus' clothing. Look at John 9, 19.23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier. Also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots to see who shall be, whose it shall be. Thus was to fulfill scripture, John says. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots, which is a direct quote from Psalm 22. Now, a number of years ago, two mathematicians named Peter Stoner and Robert Newman wrote a book called Science Speaks. The book was based on the science of probability and was vouched for by the American Scientific Affiliation. And what they did is they calculated the odds of any one man in all of history fulfilling only eight of the major prophecies of the Old Testament in one person. Only eight of what's close to 300 or 330, depending on how, how strict you want to be about the prophecies. But if someone just fulfilled eight, just went eight out of 300-ish, 
and fulfilled those, the probability that Jesus of Nazareth could have fulfilled even eight prophecies would be 1 in 10 to the 17th power. The odds of 1 in 10 to the 17th power. They go on to describe that the equivalent of this, just to make that's, that number so huge <laughs> that it's hard for us to get our minds around, but this is how they describe it. They say that's how many silver dollars it would take to cover the entire state of Texas, two feet in silver dollars. Texas is a big state. Anybody ever driven through Texas? It takes like half your life to get through Texas. It's a huge state. So if you can just imagine it filled two feet, covered two feet with silver dollars. And you took and marked one of those silver dollars, mixed it up in there, and sent one blind man out to make one guess, to bend down and pick up one of the, and, and the odds of him picking up that marked coin after wandering through Texas, making his selection, it's the same odds as Jesus fulfilling eight of the Old Testament prophecies. We have eight, maybe nine, in Psalm 22. So the fact, so you could, just someone fulfilling, one man fulfilling just Psalm 22 is those odds. So Jesus fulfilled the Psalm 22 prophecy. We also see that suffering Jesus walked the Psalm 22 path. Of all the things Jesus could say at the crucifixion, and he said a handful of things, this is the most, most important event in human history. What does Jesus say from the cross? He speaks the words of Psalm 22. He takes the words of Psalm 22. What is it that Jesus went to to get himself through his suffering? He walked the Psalm 22 path. He takes the words of the psalm on his mouth. Matthew 26, 46 and Mark 15, 34 say this. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What got Jesus through the cross was walking the Psalm 22 path. It is a faithful path that we can walk in our suffering because Jesus walked it in his suffering. David felt forsaken by God, but Jesus was forsaken by God. David felt hated by man, and Jesus was hated by man. David felt crushed by death, but Jesus was actually crushed by death. And if you look at Psalm twenty-two, thirty-one, the very last words, so the very first words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very last words are he has done it. Or you could translate it, it is finished. So on the cross, he takes the first and the last words of the psalm, and I think we have a picture into the mind of Jesus. What was he thinking on the cross? He was working through Psalm 22. He quotes the beginning and the end to show that he is the one who has taken all of our forsakenness, and he is the one who will bring it to a finish. He will bring everything that happens between the beginning and the end to its fruition, to its finishedness. And so we can do no better than Jesus, can we? Whatever cross that we might bear is not greater than Jesus's. We cannot be wiser or stronger than him, so we need to get Psalm 22 into our hearts and our lives when suffering comes. We need to become familiar with walking the Psalm 22 path because that's the path Jesus walked for us, with us, for us. There's something even more important about the crucifixion of Jesus. Not just that he entered into our suffering, he enters into David's suffering, he enters into our suffering. He can empathize, he can sympathize, he is with us. But by means of entering in that suffering, he can and does sympathize us. 
He became our brother in every way. But also by entering that suffering, he dealt with the source and cause of all suffering, which is human sin and the divine curse on that human sin. And so Jesus is experiencing the full weight of sin, the full suffering and curse of sin, and the full wrath of God against that sin. And he is absorbing in himself all that is wrong with the world, bearing the wrathful curse of God. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, Jesus didn't not only endure the withdrawal of the Father's fellowship, but also the actual outpouring of the Father's wrath upon him as a substitute for sinful humanity. Jesus was entering not just our suffering, but he was actually in our place on the cross. Spurgeon says this was the blackest and darkest of the blackness and darkness of his horror when it was that he penetrated the depths of the caverns of suffering. He went deeper and further into suffering. He went right to the very core of it and absorbed it in himself for us in our place. The famous Dutch artist Rembrandt did a painting of the crucifixion. The focus of the painting is, of course, Jesus on the cross, but he also painted the crowd gathered around the cross and standing there in the shadow at the edge of the picture, Rembrandt, Rembrandt painted himself. He, he, he painted himself as a, a participant in the crucifixion. And how true that is for us. Jesus went to that cross for us. He went to that cross because of us. We need to make it personal. That the suffering of Jesus was in our place. was for us. So that means that he joins us in our suffering. That means he has taken the eternal suffering that we deserve. And we really can cling to and trust Jesus all the way through. By repenting of our sin and putting our trust in Jesus, we gain two things. Forgiveness for the sin we've committed and the suffering we've caused. But we also get union with Christ that guarantees he is with us in all suffering. And that all of our suffering will, with him, result in glory, which is the second half of the psalm. Martin Luther says this, I don't know, I do not, I know not whether any psalm throughout the whole book contains matter more weighty, from what the hearts of the godly can so truly perceive sighs and groans inexpressible by man, which their Lord and head Jesus Christ uttered, when conflicting for us in the midst of his death, in the midst of the pains and terrors of hell, wherefore this psalm ought to be the most highly prized of all who have acquaintance with temptations of faith and spiritual conflicts. Those of us who suffer, Psalm 22 is a faithful path. And then the resur resurrected Jesus leads the Psalm 22 praise. You notice that in verse 21 where it shifts to now praise of God. We have the picture there of a resurrection. Jesus, God has raised Jesus from the dead. And Jesus now leads all the redeemed in praise. In the midst of the assembly, he says, I will praise you. Jesus himself is leading the Psalm 22 praise. The resurrected Jesus who went through death and is alive is now leading people into praise of God. Spurgeon again said, I like to think that when we pray on earth, our prayers are not alone, but our great high priest is there to offer our petitions with his own. He prays with us. When we sing on earth, it is the same. Jesus is singing with us. Is not Jesus Christ in the midst of the congregation gathering up all the notes which come from the sincere lips to put them 
on the golden censer and to make them rise as precious incense before the throne of the infinite majesty. Jesus helps us praise. The resurrected Jesus leads us in praise. And so what's the purpose for you and me? This is where we'll land the plane. We're almost done. Suffering than glory. Suffering than glory in Christ by faith. In Christ by faith. Suffering than glory is the theme of the Bible. It's the theme of the New Testament. Let me just rattle off a few passages here just to show you that this is not an isolated thing. This is the path for us because it was the path of Jesus. And to follow him is to follow in the pathway of suffering than glory. Salvation was suffering than glory, suffering than glory. And if we are going to be with Christ, we will enter into his suffering by, in Christ by faith. Luke 9, 21 through 23 says, The Son of Man must suffer many things, must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and on the third day rise again. And he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. You must enter into suffering with me, and I will enter into suffering with you. Luke 24, 26, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter his glory? Philippians 3, 10 and 11, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Suffering then glory. 1 Peter 1, 5, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating that he predicted the sufferings of Christ and then the subsequent glories. Romans 8, 17 and 18. Romans 8 is all about suffering than glory. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Suffering than glory, and the glory will far outweigh the suffering. Ephesians 3, 11 through 13. This was according to the eternal purpose that God has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness, access, and confidence through our faith. So I ask you to not lose heart over what I am suffering, which is for glory. Hebrews 2, 9 and 10. I could do this all day. But we will see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So by the grace of God, he might not taste, that he might taste death for everyone, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom and uh, that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Hebrews twelve two, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Philippians two, eight through eleven. Being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. First Peter 5.11, last one. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Partaker in the sufferings of Christ is also to be a partaker in the glory of Christ. So the bottom line is, is that if you follow Jesus, well, actually, if you're just a human being, you will have suffering. Sometimes you will feel forsaken by God, but in Christ you will remember God's faithfulness. And because you know 
Because you know that God promises to never leave or forsake you. So your seeming forsakenness will always be a feeling and never reality. You are not forsaken by God in Christ. You will sometimes feel hated by man, but you will depend on God's nearness because you know that Jesus sympathizes with your weaknesses and will be with you to the end of the age. And you know that in Christ, God is creating one new family, one new nation, people to love you and be loved by you forever. You're never actually alone. Not just because God is with you, because God is saving a whole community of people. He has a whole church for you. You will sometimes feel crushed by death, yet you will call on God's deliverance and you will receive it because you know that to live is Christ and to die is gain and that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, maybe not from death, but through death. And after suffering, you will have glory. You were made for glory. What does the glory look and feel like? Joyful corporate praise. Joyful corporate obedience. Joyful corporate restoration. Joyful corporate repentance. Joyful corporate resurrection. And the joyful corporate legacy that the gospel is going to go forth from us to our children, to all nations. Now imperfectly in the church and one day perfectly in the new heavens and the new earth. So I want to take just a moment here to just meditate on this. So let's just take a couple moments of silence here. And I just want to lay out some things. So if you would just bow your heads. And I'm just going to give some direction. But I want you just right now to kind of take to heart what you've heard. Imperfectly through me, but hopefully perfectly through God's word and through the gospel. So let me just kind of stir up your heart with just a few things that you might want to pray to God right now. First, concerning suffering. Maybe you have in your past or are currently dealing with intense spiritual, relational, or physical suffering. Take this psalm. Pray your suffering in this same way. Lament and praise your way through it. Question and preach at the same time. Or, maybe you've never really taken seriously the suffering of Jesus on your behalf. Think about how Christ, the God-man, willingly, purposefully, joyfully took your cross, bearing your God-forsakenness. So maybe right now you need to turn from your sin and thankfully, trustfully surrender yourself to him as your Lord and your Savior. Maybe you've never realized that the call to trust and follow Jesus is a call to suffering. You've always thought, maybe some Christian, well-meaning, convinced you that you come to Jesus and all your problems go away. Maybe you've always sought the easy, comfortable way through life instead of the way of the cross. Maybe right now ask God to fill your heart with such love for him and others that you would gladly suffer anything for his glory and for others' good. What needs to end in your life? What needs to begin? 
Or maybe glory. Let's think about glory for just a moment. Maybe you've prayed a salvation prayer before, but you've never thought about the fact that you are united with Christ. Jesus came, and in his birth, life, baptism, temptation, suffering, united himself entirely with you. And now, if you trust in him, you must consciously, visibly unite yourself with him. What a joy. We're about to sing one of my favorite songs called It Is Well by Horatio Spafford. He wrote this song in unspeakable suffering and sorrow. He penned these words while on a boat crossing the Atlantic Ocean in the 1800s. He passed through the very spot where just a couple weeks before, four of his precious daughters died in a shipwreck. And in that moment, while he's passing over where his, the watery grave of his four daughters, he sits and writes and pens the words of It Is Well. And what you'll see is you'll see a Psalm 22 attitude here of walking through his suffering, yet praising the Lord and looking to Christ as the one who has bore his suffering for him and is bearing it with him. And so let's sing this song together as our... Will you guys stand with us? When peace like a Yeah, his own blood. 
trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend even so Take a few minutes just to uh, answer any questions that there might be about the message. So I don't know if anybody texted any in or posted any. I forgot to mention it earlier in the service. But do you have any questions just to prime the pump? Yeah. Um, let's see here. What did I write down? Um, I know at the beginning of the message you asked the question. Was sort of you wanted us to think about what we're currently suffering or what we're currently going through that might be hard. And... I'm going to do what you did to me last week, but <laughs> what are some things that maybe in this season or just of late has been hard for you or difficult for you and um, and how God has been really using that season for you? Yeah, I think that, um, man, that's, that's interesting. I wasn't thinking about how to answer that one. <laughs> you did that. You just did that because I did it last <laughs> week too. Yep. Yeah, I think that, you know, I think the COVID thing has been challenging. I mean, we certainly haven't had it as bad as many people, but uh, that's been tough, especially as you start a church and kind of have these dreams of how mm -hmm. community is going to work and discipleship and hospitality. And so mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of dreams that kind of died. <laughs> and then there's just kind of the spiritual weightiness of, mm -hmm. you know, I've always been in churches where there's lots of pastors and elders. And so to feel the kind of the spiritual weightiness and that I feel everything that everybody's going through mm -hmm. at the same time and We've had some tough things happen within the life of our church. Um, mm -hmm. You know, even earlier this year, Bree and I had a miscarriage. And so mm -hmm. there's lots of things that have kind of layered, um, you know, uh, mm -hmm. that. So and, and just kind of sharing in the, the challenges of that. So those mm -hmm. are those are a few things. There's always something. Yeah. I mean, everybody's yeah. got something that's not as it should be. Right. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. That's I don't good. know if I have anything more articulate than that. But yeah, there's, an, there's just, yeah, there's a number of things that are just constant challenges, but. Mm. How do, how do we, I have another question that I sort of was thinking of. How do we be honest with God or transparent with God, um, but yet remind our hearts and minds of his faithful character? Yeah. Know, following that path through Psalms. How do we, how do we kind of develop that in our hearts you know, in day-to-day -day life, I find it difficult for myself anyways just to be totally transparent with God, you know, my current circumstance, even though he knows yeah. it, right? Yeah. Um, well, I'm certainly no expert on this, but I think that's why God gave us the Psalms, mm. was to give us language. If it's like, okay, you don't know what to pray to me, I'll give you some words to pray to me. Yeah. And that's what's, that's what's kind of interesting <laughs> about the Psalms is that it's inspired scripture of God speaking, but it's inspired speaking of someone speaking to God that mm. then becomes God's word to us, right? So... <laughs> It's so kind of God to use actually the sufferings and the experiences of the psalmist and going, I'm going to turn your experience and your words into my words. Mm -hmm. So how kind of God to actually right. so cooperate with humanity that he makes. And, uh, you know, I think it's the longest book for a reason. 
and deals with, I think, just about every human emotion and situation. So I think memorizing the Psalms can be very helpful. I haven't always done that, a good job of that, but just I, I think living in the Psalms regularly will give you, obviously you've got Christ in there, you've mm-hmm. got the sovereignty of God, you've got praise of God, you've got every kind of suffering that you can think of, you've got joy and sorrow, you've got disappointment and anger. There's times when it's like the psalmist is actually asking God to, dis- to destroy the infants of his enemies. Mm-hmm. And you're like, can you pray that? I guess you can. <laughs> and God's big enough to be able to just kind of take, okay, I understand how you feel. Right. Like, so we're able to be just like really honest with God. I think the book of Job tells us that too. Mm. Job, you know, Job is like, I will not have my day in court with you, God. <laughs> it's like, Wah. you know, by the end, he's changed his tune a little bit. But in suffering, yeah. you can cry out and you can be brutally honest with God. And so... Um, yeah, so I think the Psalms give us words, and I think it, it's interesting that even Jesus uses the Psalms. Mm-hmm. It's not like even Jesus necessarily, as he's suffering on the cross, he even uses the Scriptures yeah. to pray to God in his agony and to, to persevere through the trials, that, the trial that the cross was. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's my simple, yeah. simple answer. I think you kind of answered this already, but how do we, like, uh, I know especially for, Josie and I, and there's a lot of us in this room who are young, how do we, this early on in life, if we haven't experienced suffering to the degree that a lot of people have, how do we, uh, well, one, how do we prepare well for suffering, mm-hmm. you know, as, as we should expect it to come mm-hmm. for the Christian? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so. I, don't know. I think community is a big deal. So I think we yeah. need to be in with a bunch of other Christians, and we have to be willing to open up and tell our stories. Mm-hmm. Because I think you'll realize, like, that's one of the things I think with suffering is it can feel so isolating. Yeah. And so that's, I think, why God has given us a community and why we have to open up even about our suffering. Even though we'd rather not, we'd rather put kind of a nice, clean, my life has been great mm-hmm. image to go ahead. Even if it's smaller sufferings, to just know, oh, I'm not alone. And while nobody has walked through the specific suffering that you've been through, Bree and I were talking about this the other day, that sometimes it can be hard to help someone through suffering unless you've been in the exact situation they have but no one's ever gone through the exact same yeah yeah you know so uh, we have to be humble enough to receive even if someone doesn't totally understand our position to be able to empathize and rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep and i think we need to be willing to share hard stories our hard stories Mm -hmm. because we don't know what that'll unlock in someone else Uh, when someone has opened up about something suffering or or struggle or temptation I've, i've very rarely seen in a gospel church where that's just attacked Mm-hmm. Usually everyone's like, oh, thank God. Thank God there's someone else, right. <laughs> you know? Like, I thought we all had to kind of hide that stuff. And yeah. so the moment one person kind of lays that out there, everyone just kind of breathes a sigh of relief and goes, okay, this is a place of grace. And, you know, we're all been devastated by sin, our own sin and the sins of others. And so mm-hmm. um, that's a really joyful and painful place to be. Mm-hmm. Super simplistic. I mean, I know I'm just giving a lot of platitudes here. This is a lot harder to do in actual practice, but, right. but I think it's true. So. Yeah. That ends it for my questions. Anyone Was there anything, Terry? Okay. I didn't ask for any at the beginning. I forgot to, and so I didn't expect there to be much. And Maybe it is. So. Is, there, is there anyone in here that has a question? Yeah. You got one? Yes, sir. Yeah. 
Yeah, I will. Um, so you talked about how God doesn't always save us when we cry out to him from death, but he'll save us through death. I think Jesus is an example of that. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet it was still the Lord's will, you know, still his will that Jesus die and be raised again. And, um, and there's a lot of people that have a terminal disease and cry out to God with all their hearts and have communities crying out for them. And they don't. They die. That doesn't change who God is. God didn't promise immediate healing for everyone. Even in the life of Jesus, there's lots of people. Lazarus dies, and then God, and then raises him. So uh, Lazarus had to die twice. Um, and so um, it, you can't necessarily uh, know uh, the providential path God has laid out for people. There are Christians who were beheaded by ISIS members who I assume prayed for deliverance and weren't. Um, and so the deliverance Jesus offers is something bigger and greater than just the immediate there will be suffering and then glory but glory may be on the other side of death um, most certainly will be I don't know if that helps answer the question any others cool thanks for hanging in there today I pray there was something of encouragement here uh, from God's word and uh, I have a benediction for us today as we dismiss so if you would please stand I'm just going to read it off the screen there so this is, a, this is a blessing, just a blessing to you as you dismiss. And if there's anything that I can pray for you about, come find me. Uh, talk with one another a little bit before you leave. If you go out in the courtyard, you can, uh, you can fellowship out there. That's a good spot to do that. Make sure you engage with somebody. Meet somebody today before you leave. And um, I'm just really glad that you're here. Let us know if there's some way we can pray for you. Redeeminggrace.info to register for next week. And please leave a prayer request. I'd love for everybody to do that. That way I know how to pray. And that helps me. Helps me know how to, um, how to minister well to the congregation to know what's on your heart and mind. So I would be honored if you would do that. So here we go. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? Amen. information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.